Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> yep, we have a big problem. You and I, we each have a problem, and the problem is the same. Not only have we sinned against God, but we go back to some of the same sins and repeat them. For the Christian, the person who truly loves the Lord, this is a struggle. The question is, what can we do about sin relapse? What can we do to guard against sin relapse in our lives? If you're here tonight and you truly love the Lord and seeking to serve the Lord in your life, this is a very important question. This is, a, this is a question that perhaps you have pondered in your own struggle with sin in your own life. What can we do to guard against sin relapse? Well, we've come to Genesis chapter 20. And in Genesis 20, we see we have a case of sin relapse. Abraham, the father of the faith, falls into sin relapse, meaning that he commits a sin that he pre previously has committed and one that was recorded for us by the Holy Spirit both times. I think for a reason. I'm one that believes that everything that's in the Word, all these chapters are here for a reason, that there's not happenstance, that there's not filler, but that these things are recorded for us in the way that they are for a reason, to help us, to, 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 to guide us in our lives. The Holy Spirit records this relapse into the same sin to teach us to guard against the sin relapse in our own lives. In this chapter, we'll see principles that can help us in dealing with and guarding against sin relapse in our lives. So if you're here tonight and you, you have a struggle with sin, is there anybody here that, that, that might have that struggle? Yeah, okay. <laughs> You've come on the right night. You're here for such a time as this to look at Genesis chapter 20. So let's dive in to this chapter tonight to see how we can guard against sin relapse in our own hearts and in our own lives. If you're taking notes, the first point is this in guarding against sin relapse. Be convinced of the foolishness of sin. Be convinced of the foolishness of sin. Let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 20 of Genesis. It says this, And Abraham journeyed from here to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed at Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. In order to prevent sin relapse, in order to guard against it in our lives, we need to be convinced of the foolishness of sin. Amen? We need to be convinced of the foolishness of sin. This chapter 
is about Abraham relapsing to the same sin. What was the sin? He was lying about his relationship with Sarah, his wife. Back in chapter 12, when God called Abraham out of Ur, he and Sarah went down to Egypt for a time. And when there, Abraham was fearful for his life that they would see Sarah. And that chapter, that section there in Genesis 12 talks about the fact that she was a beautiful woman. And that they would see her, that they would want her, and they would kill him and take her, take Sarah. And so Abraham was fearful for his life. So what did he do? He, con he concocted a lie to protect himself. He said to Sarah, if they ask you who you are, tell them that you are my sister. Which was partially true, which was, there was a truth to it in the sense that she was actually his half-sister. And, but it was not accurate in terms of their relationship. That they weren't just sister and brother in that sense anymore. That they were husband and wife. That they had entered into the covenant of marriage. And therefore, the relationship was changed. The dynamic, the reality, the truth of it had completely changed. They were husband and wife. And so it was. A misrepresentation of their relationship. A misrepresentation of the reality of who they were to one another. And so back in Genesis 12, on that particular occasion, it was the Pharaoh who was involved in having taken Sarah uh, into his court, so to speak. And that passage there in Genesis 12 tells us that the Lord plagued Pharaoh and uh, with, with, the, with these great plagues and, and um, you know, not the, not the plagues that would later come in Exodus, but plagues, you know, perhaps a generic use of the term. And, and, and Pharaoh, so Pharaoh was plagued. And so he came to Abraham to, to discover what was going on with the situation, to find out the truth of who Sarah was. And Pharaoh said to him, why did you do this to me? You know, why, why, did, why did you lie to me? Why did you do this to me? You know, these, these great plagues have come upon me. Now, here in chapter 20, we see Abraham. Here, here we have Pharaoh in chapter 12 confronting Abraham about this. Why did you do this to me? Now, here in chapter 20, we see Abraham lapsing into the very same sin. This misrepresentation of his relationship with Sarah. Only this time, it's, it's, there's a little bit of added dimension to it because she's pregnant at the time. She's actually carrying Isaac. So it's not just a misrepresentation of the relationship and calling her sister, but that now she's uh, perhaps carrying an illegitimate child, which in that day and age was not protecting the chastity of the woman. Very serious. We have to put ourselves back in the, in the time, too, to understand the severity of the situation. And it should be severe today, too. Yes. And we'll get into that a little bit later in the study. It should be severe today, too. But we become desensitized because of, of our culture and our world not being able to call what's sin, sin. Mm -hmm. And that's a big problem. So 
there's kind of an added dimension to, to, to the sin here. So not, not only did he lie about the actual relationship with Sarah, he also, again, did not protect her chastity by exposing her, uh, her pregnancy and, and not being married. So the relapse to the same sin is what we see here. And you might say to yourself, you might read this, you might be following along in our study in Genesis and kind of, you know, you're you're in 2017, you're in in the 21st century and you're kind of going, okay, you know, what's the big deal? You know, Lord, what are you trying to show us? Well, it's a big deal. You know, I mean, here we have in in the space of eight chapters, the Holy Spirit pressing upon our hearts of Abraham doing this thing and then doing it again. And somehow, this serving as a, a message to us and, and a reminder to us. The question is, how can we guard against going back to the same foolishness? And can we call sin foolishness? I think we can call sin foolishness. I think there's a, there's a, there's a deep foolishness to, to sin, to going our own way, to doing our own thing, to, to not holding to the commandments in our lives. And so the question would be for us tonight, how can we guard against this, of, of, of this sin relapse in our lives? How can we look at uh, th- this reminder here, the, the Genesis 12 and the Genesis 20, and, and Abraham being spotlighted for us and, and, and learning a lesson for it, from it? The relapse to the same sin can be guarded against by us being convinced of our sin and the foolishness of it. This is not to say that we will find ourselves without sin. But I believe that we can guard against relapse to a particular sin by being convinced of the foolishness of it. Which leads us directly to another question. How can we be convinced of the foolishness of sin, of our sin? Well, this is the job of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Jesus, when he was telling the disciples about the Holy Spirit coming to them, he told them the things that the Holy Spirit would do when he came. The Holy Spirit has a particular role within the Godhead. He has a particular job description. And in John chapter 16, Jesus is actually telling the disciples that the that the spirit was going to come, that he was going away, but it was going to be to their benefit that he go away, because if he go away, that the comforter would come to them. The Holy Spirit would come to them, the paraclete, right? Not the parakeet, the paraclete. The one, it's, it's, it's actually a, a Greek word that actually means to be called alongside. Para meaning side, cleat, klesos being called. Okay, so he's the one that's literally called to our side. Amen? And so the Holy Spirit has a role to play, a job to, to do. And we've got to let him do his job in our lives. Amen. Amen? And one of those jobs we see in this chapter, in John chapter 16, verse 8, and this is what Jesus said to the disciples. He said this, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He will convict the world of sin. One of the things that the Holy Spirit's going to do is he's going to convict the world of sin. Now, many have gone the other way uh, from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
Our world has really gone the other way and, and kind of rebelled against the Holy Spirit in that sense. And that's why it's the unforgivable sin. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the one sin that cannot be forgiven. Why? Why is it the unforgivable sin? Because the person who blasphemes the Holy Spirit resists and does not allow the Holy Spirit to do what he came to do, which is to convict you of your sin and bring you to a place of repentance and a place where you say, my God, I need you, like we just sang. You don't come to that place by resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. You come to that place by allowing the work of the Spirit to be done in your life as he's come alongside of you to convict you. Now, when you became a Christian, the Spirit, not only before you were a Christian, he came alongside you, but then there's an added dimension. When you became a Christian, he came inside of you. Amen? Uh, Paul says that the the Lord has, has put his Spirit, the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of God, uh, to be inside of us, to be, to be living inside of us. And so, so we've got to continue to allow the work of the Holy Spirit to be done in our lives, amen? And part of that is, is him being allowed to continually convict us. People don't like, nobody likes to be convicted. And so let's just say that part of the work of the Holy Spirit is convincing, Convicting, convincing, convincing you, convincing me that sin is sin. Amen? He convinces us of sin. We need to be convinced that sin is sin. Oh, how we need this today. Oh, how we need this. One of the big problems that we are seeing today in Western culture is that although Western culture is sitting on the foundation of Judeo-Christian ethics and morality, the secular culture has tried to throw God out and those Judeo-Christian ethics out and then think that they're going to continue to enjoy the, the culture that was built by a belief in God and Judeo-Christian ethics. And it's absolutely crazy, and we see that Western culture across Europe and seeping into the United States now is crumbling at the edges, and even the foundations are crumbling. Why? Because you take God out, and you take Judeo-Christian ethics and morality, which come along with God, you take those supports out. And you have nothing left to support the culture. You have no foundation left. You you literally have just taken a demolition ball, not to the upper stories, but to the foundation, if that were possible. How's that? Well, if there's no God, the problem is that if there's no God, then there are no moral absolutes. And you will have, you will have, um, like perhaps your kind of pop culture atheists that might be involved in a debate on this particular, and this may be a topic that comes in in the debate. If a theist actually is worth his salt in arguing for the existence of God, he will no doubt bring up the moral argument for the existence of God. 
And the pop atheist might uh, try to rebuff that point, although the, 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 the hardcore uh, nihilistic atheists of the ages were ready uh, and willing to admit the point. That if you give up God, if you throw out God, if God is not, then there, are, there is no support for absolute moral ethics. All, everything becomes relative at that point. Everything becomes a matter of an opinion or an opinion of the group, the group think. And all you need to do is change the group and you can come up with another set of moral values. And this is, this is wreaking havoc in our culture. This is wreaking havoc in our culture because our culture doesn't know uh, what to do with, with, with it anymore. And uh, part of the problem is that when somebody does something wrong, if God is not, then are they, are they really to blame? Are you really to blame for the wrong that you do? And this is wreaking havoc, not only in the culture and the support of the civilization, but it's wreaking havoc in the psychology of our, of our people. Because deep down, every single person knows that there's a God and that they're accountable to that God. In Romans 1, basically Paul spells out that argument. But we've got to get back away from moral relativism, and we've got to get back to the moral absolutes of the Bible and the Ten Commandments. Amen? Just take a look at the Ten. Just take a look at the beautiful Ten Commandments. Amen? The beautiful Ten Commandments. You know, the, the culture was taught to despise them, but we really should be loving them. Amen? The psalmist said that he loved the law and was like honey to him, right? We've got to get back to that. We've got to get back to being convinced that sin is sin. I'll bring up a musical reference here. Steve Taylor was a kind of a satirical music, Christian music artist back in the, uh, the 80s. He wrote the song, Whatever Happened to Sin?, this was, in the, this was in the early 80s he wrote this song where it was basically saying, hey, what, whatever happened to these things we used to call sin? We're, we're 30, 40 years down the road and it's, we're, just, we're, we're further down the river. You know, it was like a stream. It was like a little, you know, little rapids and whatever back in. And now it's like this Cat 5 or whatever they call it, the Category 5, not a hurricane, but the, you know how they, 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 they rate the rivers, right? Right, You go on these Category 5 rivers where it's like, hold on. That's where we're at now. We're hold on for dear life. Hold on for dear life. And so we've got to get back to being convinced, convicted of sin, convinced that sin is sin. And then once we are convinced that, that sin is sin, we need to take it one step further. That's the first step. The first step is look, being able to look something in the eye and, and, and the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you see that? That's sin. Come into agreement with the Holy Spirit, which is actually confession. Biblical confession is actually coming into agreement with God about it, specifically as it pertains to you. That's the first step. The second step 
is that we've got we've to go one step further. We've got to be convinced that sin is sin, and then we need to hate the sin. And this is the problem where we, we may be convinced of sin, but when we see a problem of, of repetitive sin relapse, maybe in a particular area, it's because if truth be told, we're not actually hating the sin. There's something about it that we like, something about it that we're drawn to, and we've got to hate the sin. We've got to hate evil. Now, when I said that, does that ring true in your life? Does that ring true in your heart? Do we need, do we, do we need to hate the sin? Do we need to hate evil? Amen. Right? Amen? Amen? Some of, you, some of you might be going, wait a second, are we supposed to hate anything? Is hate a, is, is hate a godly value? It is when it comes to sin. It is when it comes to evil. Amen? The Proverbs said it this way, Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. What? The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. The fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Amen? And then the Apostle Paul said the same thing in his letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 12, verse 9, he said it this way, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And so we can... We can actually make some progress in our lives by allowing the Holy Spirit to do his work in our lives, which is allowing him to, to convince us, to convict us of sin, and then to, to realize the foolishness of it and hate it. And hate it. Wow. This is, this is a powerful point. This is something not to be just kind of moved over. This is something really to think about and ponder. Amen. Secondly, tonight, pray that God keeps you from the sin. Pray that God keeps you from the sin. Verse, let's go back to verse 3 of Genesis 20. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she even, she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So, first, we've got to be convinced of the foolishness of sin. Secondly, we need to pray that God keeps us from the sin. Amen? So what, is, what happens here in chapter 20? So God speaks to Abimelech in a dream. You see, here, one thing we realize is our sin can have ramifications into other people's lives. You know, there's, a, there's, there's sins that we commit against God, and then there's sins that 
we commit against other people and then that perhaps may cause them to enter into some form of sin. So God speaks to Abimelech in a, in a dream about what he did. God, give, God, God gives him notice of his danger, his, his danger of sin, telling him that the woman is a man's wife and that he is in danger. What, what is the pronouncement? What does God tell him? Thou, you are a dead man. <laughs> One of the commentators I, I read on this, he said that the person in sin needs to be told that they're a dead man. <laughs> You know, the, the person that, you know, we, we, we live, man, can you even imagine? The, the Lord is not seeker sensitive and the Lord is not worried about your safe space. <laughs> yeah. Amen. He wasn't worried about uh, King Abimelech and his safe space. He was worried about telling him what the true reality of the situation was. Now, Abraham obviously is not without fault here. He is, he is relapsed into sin. But now it's, it's bringing King Abimelech under the pronouncement of sin and being a dead man. And if God says you're a dead man, you're a dead man. <laughs> but Abimelech responds to God. What does he say? He says, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. In other words, he really kind of pleads his case. He says, look, I, I, I didn't, there was, there was no harm here. There was, you know, I, I didn't mean, I meant no harm. I didn't know. I mean, he told me she was his sister. She herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my own heart and mind, I, I, I meant no, meant nothing here. Meant no harm. And God responds to his plea with an important truth for us in regards to a sin relapse. God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. Listen to this. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. From God's response, we can learn an important Another important role of the Lord in guarding ourselves to sin relapse. What's that? He can keep us from falling. He can keep us from falling. He can keep us from the sin. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. What did the Lord say? I withheld you, King Abimelech. That's what we need the Lord to do. <laughs> Amen? Lord, hold, withhold me. Withhold me. Keep me. Should be the cry of our hearts. Withhold me from sinning against you, Lord. Keep me from falling. Keep me from stumbling. And this is exactly what Jude concludes his one chapter, 24 verse letter with. In verse 24, Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Amen. Now I'm just going to go off on a tangent here and just pay attention. Remember when we're, we're meant to 
Where are we to meet Jesus? Where are we to meet God? At the mercy seat. Amen? Okay. Charles Nestor, too, is not the pastor of this church, if you don't know that, okay? Where do we meet God? At the mercy seat, amen? That's where we meet him. Now, on top of this mercy seat, there were the angels, the cherubim, right, that had their, their wings folded to the center, and that was the place of propitiation. That was the place where the blood was sprinkled from the atonement. The blood was sprinkled, and we're to meet him at the place of propitiation. We're to meet him on the mercy seat. Now, on the mercy seat, on the top of it, there was a, there was a, a, a kind of a ridge, kind of a molding. And this would, uh, this would, was to keep whatever was on there, on there. Amen? <laughs> there was that molding. And there was this same molding, not only on the mercy seat, but on the golden altar, the, the, the golden altar of incense. And that would keep that incense on top of the, 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 the altar there too. And it's this idea that God is able to keep us where we need to be. He's able to keep us from falling off, amen? He's able to keep us in that place. And this is why Jude says, now unto him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Now Jesus also taught us the same thing. Jesus taught us to pray in the prayer we pray, Matthew 6, verse 13. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Do not lead us into temptation. Keep us, in other words. Withhold us, Lord. Keep us from stumbling. Withhold us from sinning against you. Don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the key. Now, what's interesting is this verse of scripture was actually in the news this week. If you were paying attention, if you pay attention to stuff, the Pope proposed a change to the translation. He, want, he wanted to, he said it's a bad translation. He said he wanted to change it to do not, uh, from do not lead us into temptation to do not let us fall into temptation. And the, the idea there in the verb, the, the verb is actually to, to bring into or to carry into. And, and the idea is asking the Lord not to let us be carried. You know, God's not going to, you know, there, there is a verse of scripture that God is not going to tempt you and God's not going to bring you into sin. Amen. Certainly not. But we, care, we get carried into it. And so, do, Lord, don't let us be carried into it. Don't let us be brought into temptation. Don't let us be carried away into sin. And isn't this the idea that we're taught about sin, that, that there's the temptation and that we're literally enticed and we're carried away by the desire that the, and we're carried away into sin and, and the temptation when we give into it and, and through the enticement that it, we give into it and, it and it brings about the sin and the sin brings about death and destruction in our life. And so... Lord, don't let us be carried into temptation by our own 
flesh, by our own desires, by our own lack of conviction, by our own lack of hating the evil, by our own lack of, of, of understanding, by our own uh, geography and proximity to this culture that doesn't know how to call sin, sin. Lord, don't let us be carried into temptation and sin by our own desires. And I love that. I personally read that this week, and I love that where he says, Abimelech, I withheld you. I withheld you from sinning against me. Now, I think there was an important point of his withholding Abimelech from taking Sarah. Because if he had taken Sarah, there would have been some type of relations that have gone on there. There could have been a tainting and a, 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 you know, some type of a, a, a tainting of the line there, and at least in terms of the visual of it all, in terms of whose was Isaac, right? So God has his will and his plan and his, the plan that he's working, and he has his plan in your life, amen? And just because your life isn't exactly the plan of the, the Savior coming into the world, you have become a part of that plan. And so therefore, pray the prayer, Lord, withhold from me, withhold me from sinning against you. And thirdly, we need to make it right. We need to make it right when we do sin. Let's go back to the text. Genesis chapter 20. Let's pick it up again, verse 6. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who, who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. And then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and that they will kill me on the, on the account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do to me in every place, wherever you go. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham. And he restored Sarah to his wife to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. And Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. And then they bore children, for the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. We learn a, we learn a teaching here about this idea of making it right. 
You know, when we, when we do sin, we sin, we relapse into sin. You know, there's two, there's two kinds of sin. There's sins against God, and then there are sins. All sin is a sin against God. But then there's another category where it's not only a sin against God, but it's a sin against someone else. You know, so if you look at the Ten Commandments, you have the, you have the ten, right? You have the first four that deal primarily with our relationship with God. And then you have the last six that deal primarily with our relationship with our fellow man. And that's why the two greatest commandments in the Bible, and Jesus answered the question in Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, right? That's what his answer was to the question from the lawyer, in Matthew 22. Now, if you look at it, if you break it down, yeah, you love the Lord, commandments one through four. Love your neighbor as yourself, commandments five through 10. So we sin against God, and then we also sin against our fellow man. And so we've got to make it right. God told Abimelech here to restore Abraham's wife to him. God said, restore the man's wife. And we are to make it right as well. That is the commandment. The first person we need to get right with is God. Amen? When you've sinned, run to the Lord. When you've sinned, run. Do not walk. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Run to the Lord. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the mighty, the, 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 the righteous run into it. Not run away from it but run into it because he is the one that we need to get right with. All is not right if you're not right with the Lord. We need to make it right. We need to make it right with the Lord. Now, John in his epistle, his first epistle gives us the answer about making it right with the Lord. John chapter two, first John chapter two, verse one, you'll see it on the screen. He says, my children, my little children, John's old by the time he wrote this. <laughs> He's so old that he calls the people the little children. <laughs> My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself, verse 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the whole world. And so these things I write to you, verse 1, go back, Verse 1, these things I write to you that you do not sin. But if you do sin, good news, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the one who we've got to go to. He's our advocate. He's the one that paid the price. He's the one that took the penalty. Not only did he pay the price and took the penalty of our sin that was up and, and took it upon himself, but then he turns around and becomes our defense attorney. Amen? He becomes our advocate, pleading our case. He says, don't look at him. Father, look at me. Don't look at him. Look at me. Thank the Lord Jesus, amen, for what he is, for what he does. He's an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So Jesus, the righteous, stands before us and says, don't look at him, look at me. Look at my righteousness. And he's the propitiation. He he satisfied the justice of God in that sense. He's the propitiation for our sins and not only 
not only ours, but also for the whole world. So that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I think this is, you know, don't want to get into like, you know, Calvinism thing here, but the limited atonement thing, I don't think works, right? <clears throat> Especially not with this, right? <laughs> so we make it right with the Lord. We come to the Lord. We come into agreement with the Lord about our sin and making it right with him, getting it under the blood. Getting, getting, getting ourselves under the blood, cleansed from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sin, earlier in the chapter, right before that, right? This is the context of the chapter. Right before that, in verse 9 of the first chapter of 1 John, it says this, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we get it right with the Lord. But then we need to make it right with the person, perhaps, that we've sinned. If, it, it's, if it's one of those sins where not only we've sinned against God, but we've sinned against someone else, we need to make it right with them. The Old Testament gave specific laws about making things right with those we've sinned against. And there were, there were, called, there were laws of restitution. In fact, you can look at there's a couple sections in the Old Testament and the Torah where this is, where you see this, um, one of the places is in Exodus 22. Okay, so let's say a guy stole an ox. You know, not an iPhone. You didn't steal an iPhone. There's a bunch of guys out there stealing iPhones, right? I, I, I read this a couple months ago, that somebody, like, they were, they were releasing one of the latest up, updated phones or whatever, and somebody stole, like, I don't know, was it like $300,000 worth of iPhones or something? I don't know, what, I don't know how this happened. But somebody made off with a bunch of iPhones, all right? Anyways, back to the Old Testament. If you steal an ox, <laughs> if you steal an ox, you would, you would, you, and, and, and you, were, you were like, okay, we gotta, you're caught, you're, you're, you're sorry, you got to make restitution. So if you stole an ox, you would pay back five ox. It wasn't just, oh, you, you stole an ox, you stole an iPhone, okay, give them back an iPhone. No, you stole an iPhone, give them back five. Or the value of five, because you can't make an iPhone. And this principle of restitution was really kind of not only making it right with the person that you sinned against, but there was kind of a preventative uh, prescription here, right? Don't do this thing because... It's not going to pay. Don't do this thing. It's foolish. And we make it right. And, and there were different laws. If you stole an ox, you would pay back five. If you stole a sheep, you would pay back four. And you can go ahead and read that chapter. It's an interesting chapter. There's even a whole thing on, you know, having your home burglarized at night, you know, self-defense in situations, you know, the, the people don't, read your Bibles. <laughs> read your Bibles, amen? In other words, you would make it up to the person. Restitution. If we've got to make it right with someone else, then we've got to go to them and make it right. We need to ask for forgiveness. And the person that we've wronged, that person has the power to forgive us, right? 
When, when you've wronged and you've got to go to someone else, you have to humble yourself, you have to go and you have to present yourself and ask for forgiveness. That person has the power to forgive. And Jesus taught us how we're to be when we're in that position of forgiving. Someone who has sinned against us. Matthew 18, uh, verse 21, you'll see it on the screen. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times, Lord. Seven times. This is, this, this, certainly this is enough, right? Verse 22. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven which is 490, <laughs> right? But I think the point, the point of it isn't about 490. I mean, it's not keeping a log. It's not, you know, the forgiveness. There should be an app, right? The forgiveness app. Well, I've forgiven her. I've forgiven him. How many times now? Well, this will calculate it up. No. The, the, the point is kind of don't stop keeping track. Stop keeping track and, and, and forgive we, we have been forgiven so much, and, and so we're required to forgive. And hopefully, if we've wronged someone, hopefully they're a believer. Well, hopefully you're not going around wronging believers, amen? But when it comes to forgiveness, it's a good thing because they're required to forgive you. Ding, 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 ding. You're required. Christian. You're required to forgive the person who humbles themselves and comes and asks for forgiveness. Well, where does it say that? Well, keep reading that chapter. Right after that, Jesus goes into the whole parable of the unmerciful servant. Talks about how the, the person who was forgiven so much went out from being forgiven so much and tried to demand a debt be paid, this lesser debt from someone else. The parable, the message of it is sure. We've been forgiven so much and we're not going to forgive our brother, our sister who's wronged us. We need to be, if there is anybody who are people of forgiveness, it should be the household of God. It should be the family of God. Amen? Forgiveness is a release from the wrong. When we forgive, we release the wrong away from us. And when we're forgiven, we're released. Amen? And that's what the Lord does to us. There's, there's a release. And, 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 and we need that. And we need to make it right. So, in closing, we need to guard our hearts against a sin relapse. In this day and age, in this culture that we live, so important. We need to first be convinced of the foolishness of sin. Amen? We need to be convinced of sin. We need to let the Holy Spirit do his job. And we need, to, we need to let the Lord continue to do his work in our lives. We need to make things right with the Lord and others who, who we may have sinned against. And realizing that we're not going to be completely without sin this side of eternity but we're not walking through our lives 
in our relationship with the Lord and others around us in just kind of a brazen walk of saying, well, none of it matters. I'll close by saying this. We owe it to the Lord to respond to this message. We owe it to our brothers and sisters in the church to respond to this message. We owe it to the world. Our culture that is crumbling around us. Amen? Amen. We owe it to them. 